0: Hello and welcome to TV Watch, a podcast from Digital TV Europe looking at the biggest news and trends in the worlds of broadcasting, streaming and everything else to do with the TV industry in Europe and further afield. I'm Jonathan Easton, Deputy Editor of Digital TV Europe and on today's show I speak with streaming veteran Mark Beauvoir about his perspective and role in the development of the industry. Is now established firmly as the mainstream dominant area of focus for the industry. Video streaming is still in its infancy compared to TV as a whole. This time, 15 years ago, you'd probably heard about this website called YouTube that had just been bought by Google for $1.65 billion. Maybe you were so plugged into the internet that you were eagerly awaiting the launch of the BBC iPlayer in December 2007 whilst patiently waiting for your next DVD from your love film list to arrive through the letterbox. My streaming awakening, as it were, came in 2011 when I was at university, when my housemate made me aware of this new service called Netflix and how he was binging this new show from the States called Breaking Bad. I was initially hesitant about this and stuck with my box sets of Arrested Development, The Thick of It and Flight of the concords that I'd brought with me to university. But within a year or so, my arm was twisted into signing up and I've barely used the DVD since. While I was dealing with William Wordsworth and awkward facial hair growth, today's guest, Marc Beauvoirs, was quietly working away in the background to manifest the world of streaming in which we find ourselves today. And while I was graduating with a bachelor's in English and American Literature in 2014, thank you very much, Mark was at CBS Interactive overseeing the launch of a subscription streamer, CBS All Access, before eventually becoming the chief digital officer at Viacom CBS prior to its rebrand as Paramount and laying the groundwork for what would become Paramount Plus. The exec, who has also held senior roles at NPC Universal and led the development of digital media at Stars, now finds himself at the helm as CEO of video delivery platform Brightcove. Mark joins me now to discuss his view on the industry's evolution and where he sees it going next. Your career basically charts the history and evolution of streaming in the mainstream i think it's fair to say i mean not to give you too much of a <laughs> grand introduction but what was your perspective on things early on in the kind of early to mid 2000s and did you ever feel that we would get to the point where streaming is as dominant in the industry as it is today
1: yeah i mean i've, I've been lucky enough to have a couple of seats uh, in the industry that gave me great perspective on uh, the evolution of video on the internet or streaming and i think it's now i, I call streaming sort of video and. off Audio. And how it's you know distributed in, in packets over the internet, but I think we all knew it was going to be as big as it is today and continue to grow. I think that always the big debate, even as far back as my first entry into the space in the early 2000s, was when, right? I think we thought at different times it would be sooner, at different times it would be later. I mean, even when I joined CBS Interactive in 2011, we didn't have that big a video business, right? And that was 2011, and we had to really push that video business in a big way, and even. Convince folks like Moonbez and like Ionella, who are running the company that like the, the answer was going to be the internet and for video in the long run, and we better get ahead of that. And that was still, you know, 2014 when we launched CBS All Access was still five years before Disney Plus and some of the other streamers came online. So I would just say it was a long evolution, a probably 15-year-plus evolution from you know the real networks and iTunes of the world to getting to the point now with which you know you you hear things like subscription fatigue to streaming services. It was a pretty long evolution, right? To take it 15 years plus. But I still think we've got a long way to go, right? I still think there's a plenty of growth left. It may not come from the big five or six. They may be more focused on cost efficiency, those big five or six media companies in the in the world. And it may come, in my opinion, from the next thousand across the globe and from I would say every company effectively becoming or acting like a media company and streaming video in some way, shape or form, right? And so I think we're past the middle, but not much past the middle of where it might be. And I think we've got a long ways to go as it continues to grow.
0: What were some of the challenges earlier on? Was it more of the adjusting people's mindsets or was it the technical limitations of internet speeds and people not really having full broadband connections, which would enable that video delivery?
1: Yeah, so I would say on the technical side, uh, it has been a, a long, it has been an evolution. Right. I mean, I think we were able to deliver video over the internet early on, but as you said, in small ways, in small short format, we didn't have the codecs and the uh, the CDNs in place and the distribution capabilities to really be as robust. And that has just gotten better and better and better. So now, where you can deliver, depending on how much you want to pay, you can deliver a 4K stream, you can deliver an HD stream, you can deliver it to a phone anywhere in the world, you can deliver it because of the the wireless networks. Right? All that infrastructure is now fully there. So I'd say early on, it was there were certainly technology limitations that were guiding your business decisions. I think what's always been a struggle is the content and the rights to that content and how it interplays between existing television distribution technology and internet technology for TV content and then for. Let's call it beyond TV content is how much content is there that you you've created? Like back in 2005, 2010, there wasn't just that much with that were rights cleared and you could do that much with. Whereas now with the major, you know, TV shows and movies, that stuff's all cleared just depending, depending on who owns the rights and what they want to do with them. Um, and yes, you did have to convince folks that that, that helped create that content, that it was going to make as much, if not more money doing it this way than that way. And then, you know, I think on the, on the broader side of the question was, where is all this content going to come from? Now, you have this incredible proliferation of content, almost too much, right? You've got youtube with the billions and billions of hours that are being uploaded every year and you've got you know TikTok and snapchat and all the other uh let's call it the web2 social ecosystem that that evolved to make everyone a creator right and so now you have tons and tons of video content now the question is finding the right video content and delivering the right video for the right message for the right audience at the right time right now you're much more uh, needing to be much more um, specific about that rather than just trying to find video. I mean, I remember at the beginning in some sites that I used to run, we'd just say like, well, if we've got video that's pretty applicable to our audience, let's put it on every page, right, just so we could increase the CPMs. You, you no longer can do that in the ad business, right? You need to be more targeted about how you distribute that content, maybe in certain areas like sports and news or some big event or something, but otherwise you have to be very, very you know, specific.
0: In a broader industry sense, kind of feels in 2022 that we are at a change point again where you've got the major players like netflix and disney i mean disney owns hulu which has always had advertising but netflix is the big one of integrating adverts into the platform and netflix is generally considered the rightly or wrongly the barometer for the industry do you think that now it's going to be standard practice that streamers are going to be expected to offer these multiple different packages or do you think there'll still be those kind of niche more niche offerings, which will just be the subscription purely without ads.
1: Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in structuring your business model to the audience and to the content, you know, sort of not to the business, you know, pure business point of view, right? You have to figure out what's going to work for your audience, what's going to work with the content you're supplying. Can't take a bunch of non-premium content to a non-premium audience and say, please pay me a lot per month to make this happen, right? That just doesn't doesn't work. And vice versa, taking a bunch of really high premium content. And and saying it's free, you know, devalues effectively the way the content is perceived and viewed by the audience. So I think it's going to be much more nuanced. I think is what you're seeing is that people are starting to say, and we did this early on when I was at CBS and then at Paramount that that we we did have multiple models, right? We had a, a lower price plan with ads, and we had a higher price plan without ads and more features. And I think most streamers are will likely head in that direction because they do have a very in the most major media streamers, right? The top five seven services are going to go a certain direction, which is multi-model, because they have such breadth of content, they need to start to discern the price point so that they can grow audience, right? There's just a, a need for that. And there's a need for that globally, right? Certain territories are not going to take the same prices as other territories. There's just different economic models in each, in each place. And they have a different demand curve for scripted and unscripted film, television, and, and movie content, right? So I, I look at that and say, each their own, but they're each going to probably have to have ad- an ad play and a subscription play and have to have a spectrum of how they look at their content versus their audience. I think more broadly, though, what's, what's evolved is that there are going to be many more direct to consumer services broadly across the globe that can thrive utilizing individual models. The true nature of subscription is actually premium and narrow. Right? Like you, you used to be you try to actually charge the people that really, really want it, right that really believe it has high value. It wasn't a big you know, hey, everybody should pay ten bucks in the world, right? It was more like if you remember HBO and Showtime in the states or some of the premium networks you know across the globe, it was more like, well, if you're you know if you have more money or you have more desire for premium content, well, we may charge you something to get access to that thing. But the but the masses are going to go either what was broadcast in the U.S. or government subsidized in the U.K. or you know wherever you are, it's going to be broad. It's going to be for everybody, and that's going to be relatively free, you know, or or, or sponsored by ads rather than by or by some other entity rather than by your wallet. I think that's kind of morphing all over the globe. But I think that what's really interesting to me is the internet and and the distribution of video over IP can now support any of those models in any which way, shape, or form for any content and now from anyone. Companies like ourselves, like Bright Cove, like others are enabling much smaller or targeted entities to have access to those business models and now they can go seek out their audience. We have some incredible customers that are going after very niche audiences with paid subscriptions and we have some incredible customers that are going after broad free audiences with ad-supported models. Right. And I think you're going to see, let's say, a thousand flowers will bloom. I don't know how many it is. We have 2,000 premium customers a break but I would say that there are going to be lots and lots of companies that do that across the globe. The big ones are going to have all, you know, many of the models. The one that I see that's actually faded, interestingly, over time has been effectively transactional TVOT or, or pay per view. You've kind of seen it. It works for big major sporting events. You know, you see UFC use it and, and WWE use it a little bit. You see it in some cases in. In boxing and in some other areas, but otherwise there is still movie rental and movie purchase. But you're seeing them all roll to streamers pretty quickly that are subscription based. And so it is interesting to me to watch the transactional, sort of one-off, you know, purchase sort of fade off in in uh, in popularity, uh, you know, across the across the globe.
0: Yeah, it was interesting what you mentioned there about uh, you having customers who are both very mainstream, broad offerings, and then you've got the very niche things. And I think that's one of the more unique aspects of this of, of this streaming evolution is that whereas if you, if you wanted to launch a channel in the past, you'd have to sign up a you know make sure that you were partnering with the mainstream pay TV operators, and then you're kind of at the will of them as to who sees that. Whereas now everything's a lot more targeted, which is uh, incredibly interesting.
1: Well, part of my my take on Web3, which I guess somebody said we're in Web6 already or something like that last week, but uh, it's, it's, you know, each 1.0 and 2.0 was always about some form of decentralization, like getting away from this sort of uh, aggregated nature of things to disaggregate. But what happens is, is ultimately you aggregate again right? It just, it becomes easier for consumers to find that way, right? So the web 2.0 disaggregation was, you know, we're going to go social and everything's free. And now you're, oh, what? now there's these few social networks that control a lot of the video and they they are there. Staying away from metaverse and crypto, which are not, you know, my areas of expertise, nor uh, necessarily w- where I want to spend time talking about because I just don't have that depth. But my view of, of web 3, especially for the, the world that I live in and we live in, is it is about decentralization and can video and audio streaming be somewhat decentralized now, right? There is, you know, you can post your stuff to YouTube if you're an individual creator or or TikTok, or you can make some money, right? That's great, but you're still sharing a bunch of that money with that platform. Or if you're a major streamer, you have uh, some strong production capabilities, you can go to a Roku or a Samsung or an Amazon and distribute your channel through fast channels, or you can go through and sell your content to a large streamer or you can create your own streamer if you have your own enough content and enough capability. But I think the ability to do that now over the open internet is becoming easier and easier, right? And that companies are supplying you the technology, you know, like the one that I now run and companies are also enabling you to monetize it. They're also enabling you to, to stretch in ways that you couldn't that don't take the resources it used to, right? The resources used to be very expensive and very hard and the gateways of those distributors very hard to penetrate. There are still distribution pockets, right? You still, if you want to be on connected TV, you need to do deals with some of those platforms. But on the on the mobile and open internet, I mean, you basically have an ability to go drive an audience anywhere, anytime, if you want, and you can do it, you know, with with minimal cost on your own site, on your own app, um, and and create that audience for yourself. Now you have to have an ability to go find that audience and create great content and build something for them that is a value, uh, which which will never go away, right? But if you can do that, you now. As you said before, you don't need to necessarily go through those old gatekeepers. There's some new gatekeepers and then there's also some gateless or relatively gateless options at some lower costs now that give you a real opportunity to reach reach everyone if you can if you can build the right things.
0: One company that is not lacking in resources in the slightest is your former employer, uh, Viacom CBS, now Paramount. As we're hot off the launch of Paramount Plus here in the UK and it's about a year out from it initially launching in the States, just wanted to get your perspective on on that platform.
1: It's my old team and they've been doing a wonderful job building and amplifying that business. It's, you know, we took something from business plan idea on a sheet of paper in 2014 to billions and billions of revenue at this point. And it's been a tremendous run. It's a great run for me. It was a great run for all of them. We always had global ambitions. We just didn't know necessarily how we were going to put them together. I think the merger with Viacom created a unique opportunity where, uh, while CBS had some great reach internationally, Viacom had better reach internationally in terms of the content and deals that it had available in other territories. So that that created a great opportunity to continue to launch it on a global basis. And so I think that's tremendous. The Paramount brand has great reach there. Uh, So I'm a big fan of where they've been and where they're headed. Uh, And I continue to cheer on some of my old colleagues from uh, Bar. I'm certainly a subscriber, Uh, uh, will be forever. And I'm excited for where they're headed. The content slate has gotten only stronger and stronger over time. I think that's the key, right? And um, they've always been advancing the technology in great ways. They have a great team there. So uh, I'm excited for them and and where they're going to take it next. And I'm glad they finally have it here in the UK. Took a little while, but uh, more to come, right? They, They continue to roll out territories year by year.
0: For the last episode of the podcast, I spoke with uh, uh, Olivier Jolette from Pluto, and it was really interesting hearing his perspective of the Paramount streaming strategy, this kind of two-pronged approach of having the very brand-driven, IP-heavy Paramount+, and having a more brand agnostic more kind of general content platform in the form of pluto do you think that that is something that other media organizations will try to emulate they'll have you know they've got their big content libraries where they'll have their own streaming service but then maybe try and have something which is slightly more open to other rights holders
1: I think the timing was a big was big there, right? Like acquiring Pluto when we did and having the capability to have an aggregator inside the company made a lot of sense, right, at that time. And I think they've done a great job of aggregating third-party content to create the service they have on a global basis. There's some stiff competition in that space, right? Roku's gonna do it on their own and Samson's gonna do it on their own. They, they actually act more like a platform at Pluto than a than than the other streamers in the in the world do, right? Which are much more About being owned and operated around their own content. And I think. There are two successful strategies, and I think they they likely will be for the foreseeable future. I doubt that it's really easy to create another aggregator platform like Pluto or Tubi. Those were the two that were able to do that on the free side. And the ones that were able to do it on the paid side, Netflix, effectively Hulu, although now it's Disney and who knows what happens to it domestically. I, I think the time to aggregate that is probably faded. And now you see enough individual services that now the platforms are becoming the aggregators, right? The 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 fires, the Roku's, the, you know, the, the, the CTV or iOS or Android are, are becoming those aggregators of multiple services. And I think they'll find different ways to bundle the pay ones to become more aggregated that way. I doubt that there are three or four other platform aggregation plays that will be successful in the in the marketplace. So I look at that and say, kudos to do it. those few companies that were able to get that at the right time and they're going to do great. And I think then the really premium content is going to be, you know, plowed into these larger paid services that really can pay uh, long-term dividends and can afford the content budgets that are required to make that type of premium content. Right? It's going to be the HBO Maxes, the Disney Pluses, the Paramount Pluses of the world, that, and Netflixes that can afford $10 million an episode of television and 50 to 200 million dollar movies. Right? That that that's just not something that be or Pluto, or those guys are going to, you know, they're not going to play in that space, uh, but that they don't need to. Right. They have a really robust business in other ways.
0: So moving on, here comes the bit where we can talk about where you are here today as CEO of Brightcove. Um, what attracted you to the company, firstly, and what is your vision for driving the company forward?
1: Yeah, so I, um, I I chose it very selectively. I did big diligence process on the company. I'd been a customer over a decade before when I was at Stars and built a nice monetization engine on top of Breakup platform with an old ad network called Tremor, which I think is now probably part of Magnite in some way through like five acquisitions later or something. But uh, uh, back in the in the mid 2000s, and so I knew the company, I knew the technology. It had a good, strong reputation, but you know growth clearly slowed down or stalled. And so I was very curious, it was like why, and I really wanted to dig in why. And what I learned was still incredibly strong technology had potentially over pivoted to the enterprise side of the business. And I don't mean that in a in a highly negative way. I think they found a really good business in the enterprise business, but it had sort of taken their focus a little bit off of their immediate customers for for a little while and had found that, you know, post-COVID, there was a little bit of a hangover in terms of growth uh, you know, in some of their customer base and in terms of uh, upsell and, and, and renewals. And so what attracted me is that I think there's a massive opportunity going forward. I think we are in for a wave on the media side of the business of what I would call graduating to Brightcove, graduating from Brightcove, right? That Like the, the idea used to be you, you use an outsourced party and then when you got big enough, you got so strategic, you would hire a bunch of engineers and go build it yourself. I think the answer is now the big companies and many of the mid-sized companies know that building it themselves is not a worthwhile endeavor. And I liken it to the ad serving market in around 2010, 2011, right? When DoubleClick was robust and Freewheel was robust or is robust still, but they were out there saying, why do you have your own ad server? And all of us who had our own ad servers were like, hey, you might be right. You're getting the data and learnings from hundreds if not thousands of customers. Why am I building my own technology with four or $5 million worth of people and I could outsource it to you for half that price and actually deploy those people on something more strategic. I think video infrastructure is headed that direction in the broader media space. And then on the enterprise side, I actually think Brightcove was, was effectively early to the market, right? We were helping marketers and internal communications and HR professionals use video when they didn't even have enough video to, to, to utilize inside their organizations. Sure, companies like Nike and Home Depot who have you know lots and lots of video from either their suppliers at Home Depot or they're effectively like a media company You know, from the beginning. Like Nike, they could use us, but like how was any, any other Fortune 1000 company gonna have enough video to really utilize something like, like a breakup? Now, in, in this time frame, I think companies it's a, it's a requirement that they start to act and think like media companies to build their brands and engage with their customers and engage with their employees, especially using streaming, both video and audio. And we are a company that can actually deliver that for them and something that they're not going to build themselves. And so what attracted me is that this unique moment, technology that we have and the capabilities that we can build going forward can continue to help both sides of this market. Both the media companies that need to probably save money, be more efficient and be more innovative on on features and the enterprises that are never going to build this themselves, but probably weren't ready you do have to go deploy something like this over the past decade, but will over the next decade. And I think that puts us in an incredibly unique position. Having the most reliable, most scalable, best-in-class, third-party platform to do this gives us a unique vantage point to help all of those uh, types of customers grow and grow their businesses and their, and their reach.
0: That feeds into the banner quote on your website from a quote from you saying that every enterprise will either need to be or to act like a media company, um, yeah, which I think feel- is quite a salient point.
1: Yeah, I truly believe it. I look at folks like Andreessen Horowitz starting a media division. And these, these are not necessarily customers, right, by the way. Marriott started a, a TV network by themselves, a streaming network. Salesforce did Salesforce Plus in this past year. And everyone is recognizing that they need to be able to communicate with the, either their customers, their employees in this way, if they're an enterprise. And if you're a media company, effectively hiring the engineers and content people and the things that we that we do, on at every one of these hundreds, if not thousands of companies is incredibly difficult, especially given where some of the larger tech companies are continuing to hire away, uh, that everyone building their own infrastructure seems very challenging, that we have built something that is very unique and valuable in, in the marketplace. And, you know, we get the learnings of those 2,000 premium customers we have every day. Obviously, we don't share data amongst customers, but we do learn how to do it better over time and can share that expertise with those companies as they come on board. So I do believe on the enterprise side, every company. To have to act like or be a media company. And every media company already is Is it going to need a platform that can scale with them and scale with them cost-effective.
0: And how much of this, do you reckon, was a, a natural trend that the industry was heading towards versus the COVID-19 pandemic, causing this kind of reflection where a company like a Salesforce, which would hold a big global conference in a central location, now comes to think, actually, it's kind of unrealistic to expect people from all corners of the globe to travel to one place. And we need to have that infrastructure. Structure in place to be able to distribute and the content
1: globally. And I think, well, I think someone like Salesforce also realized we don't have to wait for one moment of the year; we could do it every day. Right. In this way, we can't hold Dreamforce every day, but we could have Salesforce Plus every day. And so, I do think there are, are unique changes that maybe COVID changed the thinking, but I think it is it is strong thinking. For the future world, right, and I think it will will work. And you know, look, I think COVID saw some spikes and valleys, you know, be created in many of these industries. We're seeing it too with some of our customers. But the long run trend is that people, I mean, the mode of usage on mobile is effectively video first at this point, right? Between all the social networks and what what people are doing, connected TV, it's absolutely video first, right? You don't see a whole lot of text reading on your on your ten foot experience. And really, you know, your desktop is the thing that's changed. But if you think about even, you know, I know you and I are doing a podcast right now with people who know we're actually streaming it on video. So we could look at each other. I mean, it is video first in a different way, you know, even on, on your on your laptop or your desktop. So if that's the mode of communication leading the way, you know, you're gonna need solutions that can provide that for you in a robust way, you know, whether you're an enterprise or a media company or you know, anything in between <laughs>
0: So that's the show. Thank you very much to Mark de Beauvoirs and to you for listening. TV Watch is written, produced, and mixed by me, Jonathan Easton, and Digital TV Europe's editor is Stuart Thompson. You can find me on Twitter at EastJohnEast East, or get in touch with me via email at jonathan.eastoninformer.com. You can follow Digital TV Europe at Digital TV Europe on Twitter and at DigitalTVEurope.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter that will keep you up to speed on all the latest goings on in the industry. And if you're new to the show and would like to be informed when the latest episodes are released, you can subscribe to TV Watch on your preferred podcast platform of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts or whatever. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.